around the world, engineers and architects, constructors and owner-operators are using Bentley software solutions to design, build and operate the infrastructure that sustains our economy and our environment, including integrated applications and services built on an open platform our solutions enable digital workflows across engineering disciplines and distributed project teams from the office to the field. And today, leverage digital twin technology to help solve the most complex of engineering challenges. Together, we are advancing infrastructure. So welcome to the latest episode of the Engineers Collective. My name is Claire Smith and I'm editor of New Civil Engineer. I'm co-hosting this episode with our Deputy Editor Rob Horgan and our Acting News Editor Catherine Moore. And as this is our last episode of 2022, we're going to look back over our top stories from the past 12 months, as well as reflect on what projects we've been out to see on site and look ahead to what 2023 might hold for the sector as well. So let's start with our top stories. We've selected these based on page views on our website, and you might think that would mean that our top slot would be taken by a story from early on in the year, but that is not the case. It's actually one from October this year, and it is also our all-time most read story on, on the New Civil Engineer website too. Catherine, please reveal what that story is. So our first story is based on a suggestion that Jacob Rees-Mogg um, made to switch to Imperial measurements for buying goods. So this then looked at engineers' concerns over these proposals. Um, so they had survived the proposals from the early Brexit days and basically they would see all products purchased within the UK measured using the imperial system of pints, pounds and miles. Um, but engineers had raised a lot of concerns about the potential implications of the plans. So one um, in particular, Arab Director of Infrastructure Design, Tim Chapman, um, had said he wasn't a fan of the switch back um, because with the complex systems that civil engineers use, the metric system is a lot more efficient. Um, and he said that the industry relies on a lot of complex digital systems to operate, and these would all have to be completely rewritten. Um, and National Highways actually confirmed that if Imperial measurements did become the UK standard, a number of its systems would have to be altered. So on the back of this story, we, we ran a poll on LinkedIn um, looking at what our readers thought of this. So they voted overwhelmingly against the plans. Um, we asked from an engineering perspective, do you support Jacob Rees-Mogg's plan to return to Imperial measurements and 91% of 1,301 respondents said no, they didn't. Um, we asked a second question then, which was how would the proposed shift affect your job as a civil engineer? And 90% of 1,053 respondents to this question said it would make their jobs more difficult. So uh, overwhelmingly, um, engineers were against the plans. It was interesting to look into the implications of them a little bit more. Um, but with the, the subsequent changes in government, uh, they sort of seem to have fallen by the wayside, um, which also, I suppose, indicates the, the political turmoil this year as well. Yeah, fortunately, that seems to have disappeared, doesn't it? It's not a proposal there anymore. Mm -hmm. So 
Our second most read story is an interesting one. It's the kind of story that inspires engineers. It's a two billion pound project for a tidal barrage across the wash between Gibraltar Point in Lincolnshire and Hunstanton in Norfolk to act as a flood defence. However, the plan also includes road and rail links, plus a deep sea container terminal that will also generate tidal energy. It's quite interesting all the different things that come together there. The proposed centre port UK barrage is 17.7 kilometres long and would use turbines beneath the structure to generate enough power for 600,000 homes and businesses in the region. But it also protects an estimated 1 million people from flood risk too. So the flood protection would cover um, Peterborough and Cambridge, which I think just shows how far the benefits would extend. From a connectivity point of view, the project promoters Port Evo have said that the plan to include a dual carriageway would cut the journey time between Norfolk and Lincolnshire from two and a half hours to just 20 minutes. That's quite incredible, really, isn't it? And I guess that's that would really empower the levelling up agenda as well, having that kind of connectivity. And um, Port Evo said that would really create a new powerhouse of business, which I guess supports that. It's more than just a concept too, because energy supplier Centrica has put forward seed funding for the project to get technical feasibility and environmental studies for it underway. But Port Evo is looking to raise a further eight million to progress these investigations further. I'm really looking forward to following that one. As it appears to have built in quite a lot more benefits that might mean it has more potential than perhaps previous tidal barrage schemes that we've covered. Who knows? So Rob, what comes in at number three of our most read stories? Yep, it's a bit of a gear change. The The third most read story of 2022 uh, relates to the collapse of a timber road bridge in Norway. Um, the Tretton Bridge collapsed in August, prompting Norwegian authorities to close 14 other similar structures in the country. Uh, thankfully, nobody was seriously injured, but the 150 metre structure was only built in 2012, uh, which led to questions over why the bridge failed so dramatically. Um, if you haven't seen the images, it's well worth looking up. Um, we've written about it plenty of times. Just so it's the Tretton Bridge. Just search out on New Civil Engineers website. Um, that it's worth looking at how spectacularly the bridge did collapse. Um, just to to really gauge what we're talking about. Um, but according to Norwegian Safety Investigation Authority's preliminary investigation report, which has only just been published, um, the collapse was caused by a break in one of the diagonals in the main span which called caused overloading of other elements um however the story which performed so well online for us uh, on new civil engineer related to the lack of major timber bridges in the uk um so following on from the collapse we spoke to bridge design experts and different different engineers within the sector to to sort of ask them uh, why there aren't uh, more timber bridges or any timber bridges being built in the UK anymore, especially not road bridges. Um, and WSP Head of Civil and Bridge Engineering, Steve Denton, explained that the lack of timber bridges in the UK has has little to do with their safety or any safety concerns, but it's more to do with the lack of appropriate materials available in the country. He said that timber road bridges like the ones in Norway are more prevalent in countries that have easy access to timber. So Scandinavian countries and New Zealand as well, he, he pointed to as, as examples where there are, are lots of timber road bridges. Um, and he, he did, however, not rule out the possibility of more timber being used for structures in the UK, especially given the need to reduce ca carbon within the built environment. So perhaps that's something we could see some, uh, some pitches for next year. 
who knows? But that investigation is really critical, isn't it, to understand what the risks of them are. But collapses and engineering disasters are always really well read. And looking back over New Civil Engineering's 50-year history this year, it showed me that magazines always played a key role in early reporting on the causes and triggers behind collapses, with our reports often coming months or even years ahead of official reports, but make them really, really essential reading for the civil engineering industry. However, the other kind of story that's really popular is one involving milestones on major projects, and that features in our number four slot this year, doesn't it, Catherine? Yeah, that's right. So this story looked at HS2 Euston Station, which is um, a, obviously a big um, element of the project that we have been covering. So the Department for Transport revealed that significant elements of the original design work on the station could no longer be used um, after the decision was taken for it to be scaled back from 11 to 10 platforms. So this um, came out of the DFT's six monthly update on HS2 and basically said that HS2 Limited has has to discard large parts of the design and it had already spent 105.6 million on this. So the background to all of that is that in October of last year, the government and HS2 Limited confirmed that they would scale back the number of platforms at the station from 11 to 10. And this was to allow construction to take place in one single phase. So the six monthly report said that the move to that smaller platform plan and the, the sort of single stage delivery strategy that is now the basis for the ongoing design work. And it adds that the DFT anticipates this will assist in addressing some of the cost pressure in Houston as the updated design is developed over the coming months. So interesting to see the uh, the kind of outworkings of the, we had covered the changes to the platform plans. And it was interesting then in that report to be able to pull out what, what cost implications that actually had. And then looking elsewhere, on HS2, there's been a lot of progress this year and recently um, at Old Oak Common, for example, contractors have, have progressed with the station box, piling and utilities. Um, construction is progressing on the Cone Valley Viaduct and we've been able to, we've had a few site visits actually out to the site of the viaduct, which has been great to see the work in person there. So the, the viaduct will be the longest on HS2 phase one and the longest railway bridge in the UK. And basically the structure itself comprises a thousand of these unique precast segments, which each weigh up to 140 tonnes and they are being manufactured on site. So when I went myself, I was able to see the uh, factory where they're being made and then go down to the actual location of the viaduct, which was really interesting. So at the minute, a quarter of the segments have been manufactured and HS2's contractor Align JV has started assembling the segments. So they, they started that in June and around 125, I think, are now in their final position. So uh, the progress and, and work is happening there, which has been good to see and good to see in person as well. It's been really interesting to get outside and see all those, but it's always the cost of projects I think that our readers are interested in. And there's another aspect to that that's coming this year. We've already touched on the political turmoil, but the other big headline in the mainstream media has been inflation and the cost of living crisis. And inflation has had a huge impact on infrastructure projects too, and it makes it into our top five stories this year. Rob, what impact has it had and what was the top story on that topic? 
Yeah, I'm sure, as I'm sure as all our listeners would have guessed, a lot of our news coverage this year has focused on schemes being uh, paused or reassessed as inflation bites, material prices rocket and construction labour becomes ever more scarce. Um, in the last few months alone, we've seen inflation blamed for cost rises on the Silvertown Tunnel, Lower Thames Crossing and Stonehenge Tunnel. Material shortages have also been uh, given as a reason for a host of road project delays and most recently the repairs to Hammersmith Bridge as well. Um, HS2 bosses and network rail chiefs have also said that inflation is starting to have an impact and schemes may suffer as a as a con- consequence. Um, however, at the moment, it's, it's the locally funded infrastructure schemes that seem to be suffering the most. Uh, and it was a story about one of those which makes it into our top five most read stories of the year. Um, it relates to the construction of a new junction on the A361 North Devon Link Road in Tiverton procurement for which was pulled by Mid-Devon, Mid-Devon District Council, as a mouthful, in July due to significant increases in construction sector costs, the, con- the current contractor marketplace and the volatile prices of steel, concrete and aggregate. So basically all facets of inflation really they're blamed for for the pause on that project. Um, it's actually the second phase of the road upgrade with Alan Griffiths completing the first phase as long ago as 2018. Um, so it's led locals to refer to it as the road to nowhere for now. And if you see a, an image from it from above, you can really see why that's it's been given that, um, that you know unwanted nickname, I guess. Um, but unfortunately, as I previously, me- previously mentioned, that's just one example of projects being paused or scaled back due to inflation and market uncertainty this year. And it seems to be particularly affecting local council projects. Yeah, and I think that one's particularly interesting because the next stage of it was due to unlock a load of housing developments, wasn't it? So it's going to have a long-term implication for what, what that local area can deliver. Exactly. But potentially because of the housing, that's one thing going in its favour that might sort of get it back on back on track. have to wait and see but I don't think it's going to get any easier in terms of inflation in 2023. The autumn statement in November may have confirmed ongoing support for projects like High Speed 2, Northern Powerhouse Rail and Sizewell C Nuclear Power Station but when it comes to budgets for other infrastructure there is no new money so organisations like National Highways will have to work with what they've got. So taking National Highways for example they've got fixed funding under the second road investment strategy which runs to 2025 well, what that money would buy at the start of the period in 2020 just doesn't buy the same thing now. The relation also means that the National Audit Office has started to question the value of some big road projects like the planned Stonehenge Tunnel and the Lower Thames Crossing between Essex and Kent. So I don't know what the long-term impact will that be. So lots of change then in the dynamics of the industry with inflation and politics impacting the sector, but one other big change has been much more in-person events and we've been out on site much more. So Rob, you even made it to Germany this year. Tell us why you went there and what you saw. Yes, I did. I flew into Frankfurt for 24 hours uh, to, to have a look at a 12 kilometres. Well, yeah. Um, wait till you hear what, what I did first before <laughs> you decide that. Um, but no, I went to look at a, a 12 kilometre stretch of motorway um, which on the face of it sounds a bit dull, but in reality, it was very interesting. Uh, it was, of course, not any old stretch of motorway. 
um, but it was an electrified road trial being carried out by Siemens and Costain on behalf of the German government. Uh, effectively, it involves the use of an overhead catenary system, much like those uh, used on the railways to, to power electric trains. But in this instance, it is used to power HGVs via a specially designed pantograph. Um, the trial has already been deemed a success in Germany and is being extended. And officials from both National Highways and the DFT were there the day before my visit um, to have a look themselves. So there, there's a good chance that we'll see a trial ro rolled out in the UK next year. And I think, from what I hear, we should have news of that in January, potentially. Um, but we'll have to wait and see on that one. Um, what are the challenges of actually introducing the UK? Is it easier in Germany than perhaps it would be here? It, that's exactly right. Yeah. So I guess one of the reasons why it hasn't been done here yet is there's concerns. Um, the regulations are slightly different in terms of running the wires ben uh, beneath structures. So beneath bridges, for example, on motorways, uh, you have to give uh, more clearance between the top of a HGV and the, the top of a structure. A pant the pantograph. Yeah. And the exactly, yeah. Um, where so, uh, one way to get around that though, however, is you, you don't have to fully electrify every kilometer or mile of road, you can leave gaps. Um, so the pantograph can c go up and down. Um, so that's one way of getting around it. However, there is a desire to leave as few gaps as possible so that continuous charging can uh take place. So that's something that um, Costain and Siemens are looking into adapting for a UK trial um, if it does get the go-ahead from, from the National Highways. I wonder how it would work with those those oversized um, loads you sometimes get on the motorway because they often have to clear several lanes and they're often quite tall as mm, well, aren't they? Yeah, I, I wouldn't know, unfortunately. But now I guess these are questions <laughs> for, for if they take it further, yeah. Yeah, we just need to see how they get around that. Yeah, I mean, they're not the... Uh, it's not the most attractive thing in the world either. So I think that might have, I heard that might have been causing some sort of concern with uh, government officials putting all these these massive wires across the the country. But I guess motorways aren't the most attractive of things anyway. So jury's out. But what about you, Claire? Where have you been this year? Well, that's one of the benefits of being editor is I get to pick and choose my site visit. So I've been to the seaside, I've been on the steam train, and I've been exploring tunnels all in the name of work. Um I love all site visits and I think I've confessed on our podcast about the London Power Tunnels before that I love a tunnel. So I really enjoyed getting out on site at the Silvertown Tunnel in East London a few weeks ago. And for those that don't know the project, it's a 1.4 kilometre long twin bore road tunnel that will connect Silvertown on the north of the Thames with Greenwich on the south side. And it's the first new Thames crossing to be built in London for 30 years, particularly for roads. I mean, there have been pedestrian bridges built. The last was the QE2 bridge at Dartford and hearing about the opening of that on the radio is one of the things that actually made me want to become an engineer, although I ended up in journalism, so there you go. Anyway, back to Silvertown and the tunnel boring machine driving the first bore is well underway and the contractor Riverlinks, which is formed by Bamnatal, Ferrovial and SK Ecoplant, is working to complete the scheme for Transport for London by 2025. Transport for London has said that it will ease traffic congestion on the Blackwall Tunnel and open up a new trans public transport route north to south and vice versa. But it's what the project means for the UK tunnelling records is what I want to touch on here. At 11.87 metres diameter, it's the largest diameter tunnel to be built in the UK so far. 
and is the first in the country to use a rotation chamber to turn the tunnel boring machine around at, at the end of the drive ahead of doing the second one. But just to put that in context, the front of the machine weighs 1,200 tonnes and there's just 30 millimetres of clearance in that rotation chamber as they turn it round. So it's going to be pretty tight. But that's the record-breaking project underway. There's been news of progress or concepts of other record-breaking tunnelling projects in the UK, haven't there, Rob, you've been reporting on? Yep, there has indeed. Um, And it wouldn't be an end-of-year review without talking about the Lower Thames crossing. So I think that's as good as any place to start. Um, For those listeners who are not familiar with the project, the Lower Thames crossing involves building a new 23-kilometre road connecting Kent and Essex via the country's longest road tunnel or what will be the country's longest road tunnel if and when it gets built. Um, The four kilometre long twin board tunnels will also be the largest diameter tunnels in Europe and the third largest in the world with a diameter of 16 metres. As regular listeners and readers will know, the project has had a bumpy history up until now, um, with National Highways forced to pull the original planning application in November 2020 due to uh, a lack of information about environmental mitigations and construction plans. However, after two years of reworking the scheme's plans, National Highways finally resubmitted its development consent order application in November this year. Uh, However, in that time, the cost of the project has gone up as a result of the planning delay and is now estimated to cost as much as £9 billion pounds. Main work contracts are due to be awarded next summer, with construction still earmarked for the following year. So as long as planning permission is secured in time, uh, that one could move up quite quickly. But as we've seen, uh, there's been plenty of planning holdups, especially with road projects in the last year or so. Um, But if it does get the go ahead, there is a chance that it wouldn't be the longest tunnel in the country for long, as there's another record-breaking proposal on the table This year, Ada and Worthing Council came out and said they were actively considering plans for the longest road tunnel in the UK to help ease congestion on the A27. At five kilometres long, the proposed tunnel would be a kilometre longer than the Lower Thames crossing should it get the go-ahead. It's still very early days, but the scheme was originally pitched by Transport for the South East as part of its draft strategic investment plan and has subsequently won support from several tunnelling heavyweights, including former BTS chair Bill Gross, who said that there is no technical reason why it couldn't be built. Um, So, yeah, something to keep an eye on next year. Definitely. I used to live in Sussex. I used to travel a lot on the A27, so it would definitely speed up the journey along there. So there's lots of exciting work to come. But Catherine, one of your site visits has been a transport-related one, but a project that's nearing completion. Can you tell us more about that? Yes, that's right. So I got an overnight trip to Edinburgh, which was great, um, to see the Edinburgh Trams to New Haven project. So it is on track to finish within budget in spring 2023. So they are nearly there. It is a continuation of the existing Edinburgh Tramway network, which runs from the airport to York Place. Um, and that project has had a lot of challenges Um so basically when it was originally proposed 
in 2003, it was predicted to cost 375 million, but there were a lot of delays and the cost eventually hit 776 million when the line was opened in May 2014. So an inquiry into that project is ongoing. But interestingly, what the team who are working on the, the, the new project, they have taken a lot of the learnings from that and applied them to what they're doing now which they say is has had a massive impact on you know them being within budget and and nearly there so um the the project's being delivered by the city of edinburgh council and then um contractors Cecilia farron's neopool turner and townsend and then morrison utility services so some of their key lessons are to have industry standard contracts. So they, they've taken that forward by using NEC throughout the contracting package and then having a really close relationship between the client and delivery and not using a third party, which is what happened on the previous phase. And they've also found that having a single large work site has been effective to kind of allow the team to deal with issues as they arise. Um, and it's interesting walking around Edinburgh, you see the constraints that they're working within. So um, the project is in very, very close proximity to businesses, to people, utilities. And, you know, you're you're working out how you construct this within all of that. Um, so it was good to actually get there and see that in real life. And the it was at an interesting point as well, because a massive chunk obviously is completed. Um, but there was work still ongoing that we could see as we walked around too. So it was a nice mixture. Um, so to date, well, actually at the point when I visited, which was, when was that? October. Um, at that point, they had completed um, 96% of the track, which is 4.5 kilometres. So tram track was running continuously from Picardy Place to Tower Place. And then 100% of the utility diversions have been completed and major civil works have been finished on five out of the eight new tram stops. So going forward, um, their plans for kind of November and December ongoing are to energize, well, the energization basically of the newly installed overhead lines. And then that will make way for a testing and commissioning period to begin at the start of 2023 so lots happening there and and the yeah the end is in sight for for the project but it's really interesting to hear about lessons learned from the previous phases really being put into action and seeing the benefits of that mm -hmm. so that's 2022 what's coming up in 2023 do we think so the big thing for me um which i think will sort of take take place throughout the year is, is the promise of updates to a number of national policy statements, um, which effectively set the government's position on what on what it wants to build and what it can build. Um, the government has committed to updating statements in relation to energy, transport and water resources during 2023, which could have a huge impact on what does or does not get planning approval from next year and beyond. Um, and also a massive impact on what projects get put forward in the first place once those statements are updated. Um, so national policy statements uh, that, I mean, it sounds boring. Uh, they kind of are boring, but they're very important. Um, basically, what they do is they set out the government's objectives for development of nationally significant infrastructure projects um, in a particular sector. Um, concerns 
around the current policy statements are that they're outdated. Um, and those concerns have been raised on several occasions during the last year, 18 months, as most of them were set before the government committed to its 2050 net zero carbon emissions target. Um, last year, a group of uh, NGOs called on the government to withdraw its policy support for airport expansion pending the review of the airport's policy statement. Uh, likewise, the government's national policy statement for national networks, which covers roads and rail, has also come under fire as it was written long before the government set, set its 2050 net zero target. So updates to all of those policies are, are uh, widely anticipated across all sectors um, of, of infrastructure and uh, I think will have a massive impact next year. What will be interesting, I think, that um, we haven't reported on much is when those policy statements are updated, what happens to schemes that have perhaps been approved just before those those policy statements were updated because the government isn't pausing um, the sort of planning process while it does this review or while it does this update. So I think that will be interesting. I can envision a few legal challenges going in once these policy statements have been reviewed and updated. Yeah, that was my first thought. There were going to be some legal challenges because it was the legal challenge over Heathrow's third, third runway that triggered all of this conversation about the need to update those statements, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. And then there was an, a subsequent legal tr challenge against um, the, um, the government's uh, road building plans um yeah so that was when ris 2 first came in 2020 wasn't it so it's nearly three years since these kicked off yeah but this this legal challenge i'm specifically referring to it was when former transport secretary grant shapps announced that there would be a an update of the policy statement but that planning inspectorates were told to carry on using the current uh statement to to judge um road schemes that's when there was a another legal challenge um lodged but effectively failed in the courts because there's obviously nothing uh it's all about the judge ruled that it would undermine the national national policy statements authority if if it was to to rule in favor of the campaigners but um yeah it will be interesting to see once they have updated it whether that sort of sparks another round of legal challenges um plenty for us to report on in 2023 then exactly and it's interesting given as we already spoke about obviously the lower thames crossing stonehenge tunnel there's a lot of big road building in particular schemes awaiting planning decisions sort of towards the end of next year so we'll be interesting to see what impact that has on on them so the other thing i think that will be coming up in 2023 is the topic of, de, of the recession. So we've touched on the state of the economy already with the rate of inflation earlier. But we can't skip over the fact the UK is in recession. However, I think there's a small glimmer of hope for the civil sector next year. The overall UK construction market is expected to contract by 2% next year. But civil engineering has been predicted to buck the trend with just a 1% growth. It's just a tiny growth, according to construction forecasting firm Glenagon. So looking more in detail at civil engineering slight growth in 2023, Glenn Economics Director Alan Willen told us that it would be major projects such as High Speed 2 that would drive that gain, along with the utility sector. But he sees smaller projects, those under 100 billion, being those at most at risk of being squeezed during the current recession. Alan also suggested that growth will remain slow for civil engineering through into 2024, with 3% growth predicted that year. 
but the rest of the construction sector will rebound quicker, with the overall sector expected to grow by 6% in 2024. Now, the Institution of Civil Engineers has also published a horizon scan of what challenges and issues they expect ahead for the industry. You've been looking into that, haven't you, Catherine? What are their predictions and concerns? Yes, so the ICE's infrastructure in, in 2023 report has come out and it says that how we plan, build and operate infrastructure in the UK is likely to change dramatically in the next few years. So basically the report brings together predictions of civil engineers working in a variety of disciplines. So those range from energy to flooding to transport tunneling. So a whole host of different perspectives there. But it says that the cost of living crisis and global economic pressures um, are going to have a really big impact. Um, it predicts that there'll be less money for infrastructure projects and a greater emphasis on boosting productivity and using technology and data to drive efficiencies. The report also says that huge strides will be needed in the next five years if the UK is to meet its net zero carbon commitments commitments with measurement of the whole life carbon impact of infrastructure likely to play a pivotal role. Um, basically, it seems in the report, almost every section calls for greater collaboration. So as a kind of this is what we need to do going forward, what are the solutions that looks like it could be a key one both between civil engineers but also with those from other disciplines so that could be town planners architects environmental specialists those working in the technology sector um so it looks it looks like a lot of change a lot of challenges but you know also potential opportunities to work together really effectively so it will be interesting to see how that all plays out yeah, so it looks like there are plenty of challenges ahead for the sector and I'm looking forward to reporting on them, as well as getting out onto site more and not just to tunnels, we'll say that. So that's just about all we've got time for today, but join us again soon for another episode of the Engineers Collective. And on behalf of New Civil Engineer, I'd like to wish all our listeners on the Engineers Collective a Merry Christmas and a prosperous New Year. The Engineers Collective is powered by Bentley Systems with industry-leading software solutions used by professionals in organisations of all sizes for the design, construction and operation of roads and bridges, rail and transit, water and wastewater, public works and utilities, buildings, campuses and industrial facilities. Bentley can help accelerate your digital transformation. To find out more, visit www.bentley.com forward slash The Engineers Collective.